Hi, this is Carl Hebenstreit, and I'm thrilled to be here on Awaken Nation with Brad Zolis. A huge shift is taking place on planet Earth. People seem to be waking up. Tired of the way things used to be, they are creating something brand new and changing the world we live in. My name is Brad Zolis, and I get to sit down with the next generation of idea makers, the disruptors, and the game changers. Everyday people, just like you and me, from all over, who are doing amazing things. Welcome to Awakened Nation. Uh, Carl, welcome to the show, man. I really uh, thank you, Brad. This is this is a subject um, that is near and dear to my heart, which is how to hire better. You know, in a, mm -hmm. in a lot of corporations today, I've been trained in DISC, D I S C, right? Yeah. D I S C, behavioral communications, mm -hmm. and um, it works for me. I have yeah. friends who, you know, they're in all the other, you know, areas of, of Myers Briggs and you know whatever the the training is. Uh, it seems to work for the individual, but you're introducing something brand new. Um, what do you what do you call it again? We were talking about this in the green room. Yeah. It. So I'm not necessarily introducing it. I'm probably introducing its utilization in a different aspect than what it was originally intended. It's the Enneagram, E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. Ennea means nine in Greek. And gram is grammy, but, uh, but it's nine points, really. Nine different um, points of personality and ego and motivation, really. So all the systems you were talking about earlier, and you, yeah. you said they were behavioral, they're, and they're absolutely behavioral. So you're, yeah. you're able to, to put or basically extrapolate someone's behavior in different situations, but we don't know why they're behaving the way they're behaving. And the Enneagram provides us insight into that. Damn. This is going to be a deep issue here, ladies and gentlemen, a deep episode. Carl Hibbenstreit is a certified executive coach, leadership and organizational development consultant, author, and international speaker. With that last name, you better be international like That's myself. It's right. <laughs> 25 plus year career spans the areas of HR and OD in the biotechnology, clinical diagnostics, life sciences, healthcare, pharmaceutical, telecommunications, professional services, high-tech, and real estate services industries. Having worked at Merck, hey, I worked at Merck as well, oh, Belcor, cool. AT&T, Lee Hatch Harrison, Cushman and Wakefield, Kaiser Permanente, yep. EMC Squared, BioRad Laboratories, Genentech Roche. He holds a PhD in organizational psychology from Alient International University, CSPP, where his dissertation focused on helping organizations attract retain, and motivate employees with Enneagram, a Master of Science in HR Management from the Rutgers Graduate School of Management and Labor Relations, an evidence-based coaching certificate from Fielding Graduate University that led to his PCC, and is an IEA accredited professional with distinction, as well as an IEA accredited professional provider and teacher. He is the author of The How and Why Taking Care of Business with Enneagram, now in its second edition. How did you like that, getting a, a second edition going? That's pretty exciting. Well, that's what the being in the pandemic was perfect timing to update that and make it into its second edition and expand it. So absolutely. There you There's go. Silver lining, right? Yes. And the children's book, Nina and the Really, Really Tough Decision. Welcome to the show, Carl. 
Thank you so much, Brad. Thank you for that uh, illustrious uh, travel down my past. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get started here because, uh, as I said, one of my passions is organizational uh, management, leadership, and, and uh, you know, my first book, Liquid Leadership, is uh, a bestseller in the organizational leadership arena and management and restructuring. So the buzzword nowadays, it seems to be this corporate culture kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But we were talking earlier about the behavioral communications. Let's dig in and talk uh, really about the work you do and how you do help companies because it goes way beyond behavioral. Am I right? It does go way beyond behavioral. It's great for us to know what the behaviors are to expect from others. And if we really want to motivate them and engage them, which is, I think, the biggest problem that companies are facing right now with, with all the downsizings that are going on with all of the, the 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 difficulty in really identifying what is the critical skill set that we need and and who do we need to engage and keep in succession planning and all that how do we keep our people motivated how do we create a diverse workforce and keep them not just hire them because sometimes we get to hire diverse perspectives and diverse individuals and we bring them in and then they don't stay because we don't have the right environment for them to stay in so what are all the different aspects of diversity in the workforce mm -hmm. and in the workplace so that we can attract, retain, motivate, engage them, keep the, the really great workers with the diverse perspectives that we're looking for that will help us have organizations that will succeed in the future? It's so true. If you, if you take a tour of any company and you want to work there and you don't see other people that are like you or behave mm -hmm. like you, we're going to have a, tr uh, a big problem. Uh, I actually uh, coached somebody for a TED talk. Uh, he asked me, he's a good friend of mine. Uh, he asked me to coach his daughter who was late teens. Mm -hmm. And she had started a group in her junior high for gay, lesbian, and trans uh, students, you know, so they can feel welcome and, and safe, a safe haven. So when she got to high school, she continued this work. And the school got noticed on national television. Well, then the parents got involved and then they, they try, you know, politics. So she got noticed by a woman who was an executive in the high tech area nice. and said, Hey, we're going to invite you to one of our diversity, you know, summits. So Fantastic. when she got there, she's walking around and she's looking and she tells me this whole story and it's five middle-aged white guys standing mm -hmm. on stage tying straight all straight all talking about what it's like to be a black woman in our company mm -hmm. and what it's like to be lesbian and gay and all. right and she said she looked at the woman she goes how in the heck are you doing a diversity summit and you got five white guys up on the on the podium so as right. we're working on her ted talk uh, here was the phrase that we worked on together imagine how many talented people you're going to lose yeah. because you won't hire people who look like me. Well, not only hire oh. them, exactly. Not only hire them, but as you said, how are you going to promote them appropriately to the ranks of executive leadership where there's such disproportionate representation because you didn't do the right job in hiring them in the first place. Right. And then right. make sure that they're, they're advancing through the organization at an appropriate rate to have that representation at the top so that people when they look at leaders can see themselves and see a pathway for themselves to get there too i love that it's great so how how do we hire better what are the steps uh working with with 
you know, your system? What do we do? Yeah. So I don't want to take credit for the system. The system existed many, many, many hundreds to thousands of years ago, and it's now yeah. been reapplied into an organizational setting. So it was originally a spiritual development system, and, and you can see it throughout history in all the different cultures, Egyptian, Greek, just, just everywhere, Sufi. Okay. It's just everywhere. Uh, the, the way that I am, and not just me, but other organization development practitioners as well are using the Enneagram is by helping it be used as a tool for emotional intelligence building. And I think that's the first point, even with all the systems that you mentioned earlier, they all help in building some emotional intelligence because it's all about self-awareness first. Mm -hmm. So as soon as we become aware of our own patterns, our own predispositions, our own preferences, our own default operating systems, and understand that not everyone has that same default operating system. Some people are Apple, I, iOS here. I'm going to use a new analogy now. I just thought about it. Some people are iOS. Some people are Android. I don't know if there's another one too. Was there yeah. a Linux one? Maybe there was you're, a Linux one. I you're don't know. either, either so, Apple or PC. Yeah. One or the other. Yeah. Yes. So there's there all these different operating systems and guess what? They all can coexist in the world and each one has its strengths. Each one has its development areas and we need all of them in order to survive uh, and thrive. So understanding what each person's unique operating system is and that there are eight others that are out there that are also informative and useful and required for our own understanding of what the world really is like. Because if we just stick with our own operating system, we lose out on all these other perspectives that help make a 360 degree view of the world as opposed to just a 40 degree sliver of what we look at. Wow. Enneagram. How did you discover this? And there's all these steps in, involved and it goes back all the way to Hinduism. And, and you got to tell me how you discovered this. I tripped into it. I, I had no clue. I didn't know what it was. I, I You mentioned Myers-Briggs earlier in the program and I was a Myers-Briggs person. I was trained in Myers-Briggs. That's what my organizations were using. I'm like, this is great. This is awesome. We can find out more about ourselves. We can find out more about our coworkers. We can all get along. It'll be fabulous. Kumbaya. Well, that, um, that, that got blown out of the water when I was in my PhD program at, um, well, it used to be called California School of Professional Psychology. Then they merged with another school and became Aligned International University. And I was in a class where my professor just randomly happened to know this person named Helen Palmer, who I'd never heard of Helen Palmer before. And Helen Palmer had written a book on the Enneagram, on getting it out into the, the mass knowledge the mass wisdom. And this was the first time that someone had put it out into the public for public consumption, because up until that point, it was really being taught through gurus teaching small numbers of people verbally. They would just have their own and it was not supposed to be written down. It was just like, this is your special development. And so she had a friend that was going through the program. She wrote down, her friend told her what was going on. Helen was like, this is amazing. Everyone needs to know about this. So she wrote it down and then it just got spread throughout the world, basically. Um, and other people started studying it and seeing its applicability to different topics, not just uh, people's spiritual development, leadership development and organization development. And so just by going to this one class, it was not even like an entire semester. It was just a guest speaker at one of the classes for one of the that we were in. And that's how she came in and she talked to us about motivation. And 
I was in human resources at the time as well, uh, during the day while going to school at night. And I saw the amazing implications and uses of the system to help make our lives in organizations better. Isn't that funny how, how life kind of, you know, you think you're going to do your PhD and your dissertation on this, and it just takes that one moment, that yeah. one class where you accidentally show up and you go, you just had your mind blown. <laughs> exactly. So let's go through some of the points of the system. You know, I, you don't have to give it all away, but what what is like step one in the Enneagram system? So step one is really finding out about ourselves and figuring out which is our core driver, our core motivation. And that core driver and core motivation stays with us for our entire life mm-hmm. because it's something that we have been. It's a combination of nature and nurture. So we were born with this predisposition and our childhood solidified which way we survived our childhood. Mm-hmm. So we adopted this way of thinking, this way of, of looking at the world and responding and that became our muscle memory. Our, our our great strength was that, that we always reverted back to that. It was our default. And that's what helped us to basically survive our childhood and become adults. Mm-hmm. Now, as with any system, like all the systems you mentioned before, there is your default. And then there are these other options as well. And what we need to identify is, is our default the right way of responding to whatever situation is now in front of us? So which one of these, in the case of the Enneagram, which one of these eight other styles would be more, or eight other perspectives would be more likely to produce a better result than our Mm -hmm. standard, which may not produce the right result in this situation. Right. So um, probably the easiest way to break them down is because we do have all nine within us. Just like with Myers-Briggs, we can flex into the other end of the spectrum for each of the four factors. Mm -hmm. And... If we break them down into how we think, how we feel, and how we act, there are three core motivators in each one of those areas. So three times three is nine. So there's we all think a certain way. We all feel through a certain lens, and we all act through a certain lens. And there are three different options according to the Enneagram theory. So really quickly, I can introduce them to you if you'd like. Yes, please. So if we start with the heart center, that's types two, three, and four, the type two is the superpower for the type two is really an intuition of knowing what other people want and being able to provide that help or assistance, even if that other person doesn't know that's what they need. That's me. Right. That's me right here. Front row. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and, the, and the trouble that we can get into is that sometimes the help isn't invited or welcomed or wanted or ident- or even needed or thought that it's needed. Right? right. So then the two can seem intrusive. The type two can seem intrusive. But the type two is that intuition of of helping others and wanting to help others. That's the driver. And ultimately for being liked and loved, right? That's the the ultimate reason for it. And the growth path, of course, is to do this selflessly and not expecting like or love in return. It's just because that's, it's just a thing to do. And that's what you gain your energy from. It's, it's our nature. Yes. It's built into us. It's like our operating system. Yeah, I get that. And then there are two others in the heart center too. So the type three is all about, I am going to achieve every single goal that is set out for me or that I set out for myself, right? So that's achievement, goal-focused. That's the type three. That's the motivation for the three. Achieve, 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 and being respected and liked for accomplishments. That's usually the person in the sales department. Am I correct? 
<laughs> yes, absolutely. You tend to see lots of degrees who are goal driven in sales. Absolutely. Because it's, it's something concrete that they can work towards. Did I meet my quota? Did I meet my goal? Absolutely. Where's my bonus? Right. right. So that's, uh, that's the type three. The type four is all about being special, unique, creative, authentic, and their superpower is empathy. They have lots of feelings. They feel a lot themselves. They feel what other people are feeling. And it's, it's that need for that genuine, deep, authentic connection that drives them. And also feeling finally understood because they feel like the world does not understand them. I, I'm a little bit of that. That's why I started this. We show. all are. We yeah. all have each one of these styles within us, but there's one that's the primary driver. Well, yes. Yeah. So we adapt. Would you say that we adapt according to our environment or according to where we are? You know, because you, you can't be, um, you, you know, that that driven person at home yeah. every day. <laughs> you you do that at work. So there's there's a little bit of, of two things going on. One is the goal is to adapt according to our environment, our environment, whatever the environment calls for. Because if we just stick, like you said, if you stick to three all the time and just fixated in threeness through every single situation, people aren't going <laughs> to like yeah. you and you're not going to be successful. <laughs> right, right. And But the other thing that comes into play is that each type automatically is attached to two other types in the system. And that's the predictor of under stress, you will go to one, one of the other numbers, one of the other archetypes, one of the other yeah. energies. And under comfort, you will automatically be aligned with another one of the energies as well, of the archetypes. So, so, so here, here's a good example. Maybe you can uh, share an example from your own work. Um, I used to love stressful situations because I mm -hmm. would be the problem solver. Okay, mm -hmm. so I'm very creative. I, I used to work in doing large-scale corporate meetings. So I did the graphic design and uh, mm -hmm. that would show up on these big screens and I'd have to work with um, you know, chemists from the pharmaceutical industry, surgeons, mm. oncologists, all this. So you got to be a little smart to do that right? Uh, and break down what they're saying into pie charts and graphs and show how the, the drug will work in the GI tract, stuff like mm -hmm. that. But when the, you know, the proverbial dookie would hit the fan, I was well known for, I'd get a little angry, but I'd tackle it and get it done. Mm -hmm. Today I've shifted I can't stand stress. I avoid it like the plague mm -hmm. and I get furious. Do we, do we change a little over time or what, what is it that, that's going on in my head here now? So the way that we change is by understanding, hopefully, I mean, that's the ultimate goal of, of developing, right? To understanding what these automatic reactions will be and actually controlling them. So if we say, I know what's going to trigger me and I want to be the boss of me because I'm going to control how I react to the situation, it's not going to be this automatic response that's based on my ego and my core type. It's going to now be a, a choice that I'm consciously taking to say, nope, that's not going to affect me anymore or that's not been effective for me anymore. So let me choose a different way of responding. And it's, it's our choice to do that. Conscious choice to control how we react as opposed to having that be an automatic response. That's what changes our ability to do that. Wow. So do you think people um, with a high emotional IQ are better suited for this kind of work or, or you know, you can work on them easier 
uh, in a group rather than somebody has a low emotional uh, IQ? As long as they're open to development, I think that's really the key. Mm-hmm. You know, we, none of us is perfect. Yeah. And none of us is ever going to have the highest emotional intelligence. It's just impossible. We are human what? beings. Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, no, we have AI now, right? The AI will be the perfection. How dare <laughs> so, you? Yeah. There you go. How dare You're, you speak the truth? <laughs> AI will kick us into submission at some point. So Yeah. So we'll have to see if AI becomes emotionally intelligent at some point. Yeah. That'll be fascinating. But the that's the goal. The goal is to really make sure that you're open to change, that there, that you're here and open to understanding that you do have these automatic responses that are built into you as a human being. And how can you be better? Right. There's a wonderful Maya Angelou quote that says that we do what we can until we know better. And then when we know better, we do better. So that's really what it is, just being open to that. I love that quote. I didn't know that one. That is yeah. that is really good. Hmm. That's, that's that's the aspiration. That's the hope. Do you want me to continue better. with the other two centers? Yes, please. Okay, so this, like I said, this is fascinating to me. Behavioral, you know, what what drives people? Yeah, Go ahead. I'm glad. It's fascinating to me too. Yeah. <laughs> so th- we covered the heart center, which is right. the, the type two, type three, type four, the archetypes that all around around how they address feelings and and heart. Right. The next center are the five, six, and seven archetypes, which are all about how do we think. Now, each of us will think through the lens of two, three, or four. That's the way that we will address our feelings or interact with our feelings. The five, six, and seven, we will have one which is highest for us, and that's how we think, the lens through which we think. doesn't mean we can't think through the other lenses or feel through the other lenses. It just means that this is our predisposition. Mm-hmm. So the five is the observer or analyst, very, very objective, very much about, and you, you talked a little bit about it when you were talking about the graphic design that you were doing. Right. So it's taking all this random stuff that's coming at you and making it make sense, putting it into a system or a model or a framework or a diagram or a, a graphic that it all makes sense ultimately to be a predictor of what will happen. So if all this stuff happens. I predict that this will happen and I'm ready for it and I'll be safe. So that's what the five wants. The five wants all the knowledge, all the wisdom. That's what they're seeking. Yeah. The six takes it a little bit from a different direction in like looking for the worst case scenario, the worst thing that could possibly happen and planning for it so that they're safe, secure, and comfortable. So that's their lens of looking or, or thinking. So very great at, at, project management, at thinking about all the contingencies that could happen, planning for the worst case. And again, if the worst thing happens, they're ready for it and they will be successful by implementing their plan. That's my my girlfriend. She's from Vietnam, very left brain. Mm -hmm. And I will crack a joke and she just, she'll make this face scrunch up. She doesn't get it because Mm -hmm. she's very serious. She has to collect all the knowledge. She has to have all the math done. Our budget she does in the car while I'm driving through the mountains of Denver, Colorado. Multitasking. She's like this. And I'm like, how? How do you look? Look at the beauty in front. She does that. Wow. Sorry to interrupt, but I find this. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm seeing people in my life as you're explaining mm-hmm. this. It's great. Go on. Go ahead. And if she on. does that, so there are some correlations to Myers-Briggs. So she might be an INTJ. I don't know if that's what she would test as. 
-hmm. But there are some correlations between the Enneagram and Myers-Briggs and DISC and and you'll see it in Hogan, you'll see it in Leadership Circle. All these things are correlated. It's never exact or perfect, but there are lots of overlaps. Right. Um, So the last of the the thinking center, the head center, is a type seven. And the archetype for that is the adventurer, epicure, all about experiences and options and loving life and experiencing life to the fullest and fun and excitement and visionary in the future. And and so almost the opposite. I don't want to say it's really the opposite of type six, but it's looking at the world from a positive perspective as opposed to for the worst possible thing that could happen What's the best possible thing that can happen. And how do we take advantage of that? So that's the type seven. Wow. And that rounds out our thinking style. So we will most of the time approach our thinking through one of those three lenses, the five, six, or seven. And then the last three are sometimes called the gut center or the action center or the body center. And those are the eight, nine, and one. The eight is the boss, protector, or general. And they're all about execution and getting things to, to happen, usually through others. And they're very protective of their inner circle, of their direct reports, of their family, of their loved ones. And they're the closest to liking conflict. I wouldn't say they like conflict, but they see conflict and debate as a way to getting the truth. And they're very much about truth and justice. Hmm. So that's the eight, um, eight. nine. And we reward that, by the way. You mentioned the threes were rewarded uh, in sales, right? Right. And our leaders, we see the sevens and the eights and the threes are the ones that are most likely to be rewarded into leadership positions because those are the qualities that we want in our leaders. Right. And in the Western civilization. And that's what that's who we will promote most of the time. Um, the nine is the mediator or peacekeeper, and the mediator or peacekeeper is great at the systems thinking about looking at the whole system, the whole world, how does everything fit together, and how everything is equally valid and equally good. And so they don't want to rock the boat. They want things to just stay the same. Don't cause conflict. Just let's, let's just, I said kumbaya earlier. Let's kumbaya. <laughs> yeah. So the, and we're rounding it out with type one, which is the perfectionist or reformer. And they're all about doing the right thing according to their set of values and ethics and morals. Hmm. It sounds like, you know, this is, you said we can be a combination of these. And I really feel as you're describing this, I'm, you know, I'm trying to project it on myself and the people I know and love in my life. And I can see it really, Mm -hmm. really powerfully as it, it just kinds of like, like I can be the adventuresome person who's very positive, but I can also be really negative too sometimes. And I can also be um, the person who spots talent in someone else and really wants to help them. Uh, this is really powerful work, man. I, I really love that you you learned this. Um, how have you helped companies with this? Because I want to delve a little bit into this and we want to talk about your book as well, where we can get this, but how have you helped companies with this work? Because I know HR is dying for yeah. the right stuff right now because we have a generational component to this. Millennials uh, have proven they uh, there was a great study, this is a long time ago, maybe a decade ago, where a group of uh, 100 millennials was hired by a pharmaceutical company and they said, okay, you got 90 days and you're going to work here and you're going to intern here and after 90 days... We're going to pick, you know, maybe, I guess it was like 25 of them they were going to pick. Well, after 30 days, every single millennial 
quit and they left one email and they said, you people are evil. <laughs> okay. Wow. So mm-hmm. this is, we have a generational difference that people are still ignoring right now. I'm a baby yes. boomer. I'm in, I'm 60. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, you know, I have different expectations, likes, needs, and wants compared mm-hmm. to somebody who's 30, 40 years younger than me. Right. And they were raised so differently. How do you handle that in an organization? So the first question, I want to address the first question you asked, is how do I work with, with the Enneagram in organizations? And it's it's through a variety of different ways. Um, the, the, the primary way is through executive coaching. So executive coaching to build that self-awareness and emotional intelligence and to make sure that the executives are the best leaders that they can be so that they actually fulfill their potential. And they, because we all know that people, just like in the example that you mentioned, the, the millennials sent an email said, you all are evil. So they, they leave leaders who are bad. They don't necessarily, if the, if the leaders were good, they wouldn't have left the organization, right? They wanted to come to that organization for a reason. The organization spoke to them somehow. The mission spoke to them. Something spoke to them about the organization or the job or the role or whatever it was. But then the evility of the leaders in that situation that you mentioned is what caused them to leave. So if we have better leaders, that is step one. Mm. And step two is the team, the leadership team, and also the organization. So understanding each person's for the leader to understand each each one of their direct reports or motivations and treat them differently because they all require different treatment at the different stage of their life cycle, employee life cycle, at the different, whatever their core needs are, what's going on with them in their lives at the time. And that could be generational as well. So if they can understand all these differences that exist within each one of their direct reports and, and just treat them the way that they need to be treated or they want to be treated as opposed to how the leader thinks that they should be treated or how the leader would want to be treated. So golden rule versus platinum rule. Right. Then we're going to get much better interpersonal dynamics, team effectiveness results. Everyone's going to be focused on the right thing and working together in the right way, being motivated the right way for them to achieve what's, what's good for the organization. So that's the two ways that I work with it. I think that's fantastic because um, I worked with an organization right around when my uh, first book came out, Liquid Leadership. This company called me in and they said, we discovered a huge problem in our company. And I said, well, what was that? They said, we had this vision of what the company was at the executive level. And we, mm-hmm. we had it on all the charts and we were you know, talking the talk, walking the walk. And then we had a town hall meeting and we found out there was a huge disconnect between what we thought the company was and what the very lowest level employee was experiencing and the people managers were experiencing. And the disconnect was so far away, you might've well been on a football field with goalposts at the opposite direction. Well, God bless them. They devoted the next five years Mm -hmm. to bringing those goalposts together. Yeah. And I was part of that, you know, teaching the generational communication difference going Mm -hmm. on there. So, I take my hat off to these companies that are willing to throw away, and I I hate to say it, a lot of these business schools and business management are still teaching the same thing. Just get rid of people, hire and fire, hire and fire until you get the right group. Now we are intentionally creating corporate culture 
And you are, you know, I, I want to elevate your work, my brother, <laughs> because, and, and the sisters out there that are doing this, um, this kind of work, this is so necessary right now in the corporate environment, because we're stepping into a new era uh, away from the old capitalist model of basically whipping people into shape and then getting rid of them if they don't fit in. And now we're discovering a whole new way of doing this. And I want to ask you a couple of questions on this. There was a, there was a study done by a Harvard Business Review. We talked about this in the green room, but they cited Netflix as rearranging and changing uh, you know, management the, and leadership. And what they did was they decided not to hire three B or C candidates. They only went for A candidates. Mm-hmm. And they found that these to just hiring these type of A players, they get competitive around each other and they want to do better. And they only hired adults. That was one of the, the major things. If the person didn't have a high emotional intelligence quotient, they wouldn't hire them. And I want to ask you, you know, do you see this in some environments where it's all A players and can all A players get along, um, you know, basically with your system? So the answer depends on how you identify or define A players. So your yeah. defi- each company's definition, operational definition for that may be different based on their culture. Uh-huh. So traditionally, we're going to define an A player as someone who produces results, right? Someone who's a workaholic, someone who's going to be there 24-7 or available 24-7, And it's going to be so devoted and dedicated to the company and its goals that they will die at at their desk, right? Producing results until they die. That's one of the definitions that we've applied in the past or seen in the past. And we know that's not sustainable. Yeah, it it creates burnout. Sorry to interrupt, but this whole attitude that you can whip and whip and go and go and not stop, um, Mm -hmm. you you lose your best players, folks, because they get burnt out. Yes. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, but it's no, no, you're absolutely right. And it's the fixation on that, that um, we need to be, we need to have all eight players. The answer is in expanding the definition of what an A player is to include exactly what you said. Let's prevent burnout. Let's have work-life balance. Let's have different perspectives because if we're only hiring whatever the definition of a player is for us, we're only going to bring those types into the organization and we're going to miss out on the diversity of perspective that we need from the other eight styles, or maybe you're going to have seven or six styles, depending on how you've identified what a player means. So you're going to only be focused on certain things. You're going to create group think you're going to burn out. You're going to have people quitting or dying or getting sick. Yeah. And that's just not going to be sustainable. So that's not a sustainable model. Unless the definition is purely A players are from every single perspective and and background and heritage and ethnicity and and yes, we're all focused on the same thing for the same goal, the same mission. And guess what? There's more than one way of getting to that. Well, you you need all kinds of people in an organization. And uh-huh. and I'm sorry to go back to disc, but under disc, I learned that, you know, let's let's take the sales division. Uh, that part of the company usually hires D's, which are the right. dominants. They get tagged. Right. 
They think birthday right. parties are the silliest damn thing in an organization. They mm-hmm. don't care. Why is Sally crying? You know, they don't they don't care about those things. Mm-hmm. They just want to crush the sales. They want to get the numbers out. Yeah. Now, what they found in these organizations is the next one over is the I, and that's the interpersonal person. That's me. Mm-hmm. I like to open a conference. I like to go, hey, how's it going, Carl? How's how's there, how's your day been? How's your family? Whereas a D, when they approach somebody, they go, hey, did you sign the contract? Did you? You know, that very different way of approaching business. But guess what? They Every organization has the S and the Cs, and those are the steadfast people and the contemplatives. Think of that as your engineers and your accounting department, okay? Yeah. These people don't make a move unless they analyze something to death or they fear has been placed in front of them to motivate them. Yeah. So they discovered the eyes usually are the ones who get fired. Mm-hmm. And here's why. They put their head up and they always are seen as talky, talking, the chatty Kathy in the organization. But guess who is the only person that can get the Ds communicating with the S and the Cs? Yeah. Because the Ds offend the hell out of the S and the Cs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the I is the most needed yeah. person. So in every organization, do you see this kind of this Absolutely. kind of disconnect? It drives me crazy, by the way. No um, pun intended, right? Disc- yeah, disc- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, disc- <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Try the veal. Uh, You're a week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but let's talk about this. You work with these organizations and do you see this all the time that uh, this, this complete disconnect as to who's really the functioning individual in the organization? So yes. And depending on the organization's culture, and depending on what they identify as a player and reward and promote and all that. Mm-hmm. So we will see in most Western organizations, the threes, the sevens, and the eights, which are, guess what? ID, uh, be the ones that are promoted into leadership positions. And then I also uh, score high on I, influencer mm-hmm. and interpersonal. Yeah, and I have a funny story for you. When I worked at, um, I'll name the company. Why not? It's a long time ago. Kaiser Permanente. I had a <laughs> wonderful coworker. She was high. She is. She is high D. And I'm I. And this was early in the morning. We both, we were we were in early for whatever reason. It was like seven something in the morning, maybe 7.30. And so I'm getting every all situated. I'm sitting down. She comes running in and she's like, like did, you know, did you get this? Did you get this? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no. good morning. Yeah. So it's like the, you know, the opposites, like right, the D and the I right there. And that just stopped her in her tracks. And she says she always remembers that. And that's always what reminds her to, you know, I got to slow down and just be there with the person and connect with them. And then the work can happen. That's that's hysterical. She didn't even probably drink her coffee yet. You're sitting there sipping away. Hey, good morning. Good to see you. (laughs) My girlfriend does the same thing. Uh, it'll be seven in the morning on a Saturday and she'll pop up with her phone in her hand and she go, Oh, they deposited the check. Your client did deposit. And right away she's going into the, I go, do you want to do the math? Do you want to, I make a joke out of it. You want to do the math or do you want to say good morning to me? Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and if you have a partner in your life, ladies and gentlemen, this stuff will help you as well. Yeah, if you're married, if you, if you have a significant other in your life, 
this is gonna, yeah, this is gonna help. And <laughs> you, you can laugh about it because you know that's the hardwiring. That is the yeah. hardwiring. Oh, yeah. They're not doing this to be a jerk. They're not doing no. this to be a jerk. Not at all. Not at all. We just need to be more conscious about how we are coming off to other people and uh, uh, how we can be more effective in our interpersonal relationships with other people. But yes, to answer your question, I do see that all the time. Organizations, depending on their culture and what they promote and reward, will have some of these high D, which are going to be the threes, the sevens, and the eights, some ones as well, um, that are the, the drivers of the culture. And then some of the other types, which are counterculture, are not going to be as rewarded, depending on the on the discipline or function as well. So in some functions, you're going to want to see like high eyes will be in HR sometimes yeah. in HR. Um, the, the S's and the C's, you'll see them be more in the R&D world right. or the accounting world, right? Yeah. And that also has that correlation with the Enneagram style. I like what you said, because every time I've asked you a question, you bring it back to, well, it depends on the culture. It depends on what they think a type A is. And I like that you said that because I grew up, my whole career was in the advertising, marketing, design world. And in that world, the more you can be as creative as hell (laughs) and meet your deadlines at the same time, like you're almost attacking and being creative at the same time, the more successful you will be. And it's a, it's, it's also the type of, um, uh, how can I say it? It's, it's also the type of industry that hires, um, the weirdos, the outliers, the people who don't quite fit in, you know, like myself, I may look a certain way on the outside, but yeah, I am, I, living in New York for 35 years that I loved it because I fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, this is, this is the norm where I came from, but I see corporations now starting to go, well, we need to do it this way. And I go, well, design firms and advertising agencies have been working like this for over a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we seem to be having this shift. Do you see it happening that way? Or am I just, you know, thinking out, out of the box a little bit? <laughs> I do see more inclusivity in certain pockets, in certain organizations. Again, the ones that are ready for it, the yeah. ones that aren't saying we need to hire, you know, the traditional right. new player. Uh, and because, again, and whenever you have the same type or the same archetype of leader, they tend to hire in their own image. So it's yeah. excluding these other types of people that you're mentioning, these other drivers that are, are not seen as, as worthwhile or as valuable. So I do see those organizations that get it, that are saying, okay, we need to make sure that we don't have these implicit biases in place when we are making our hiring choices and we need to expand. And yeah, we are not going to be able to give tests to figure out what Enneagram style these people are, right. this style they are before they're hired. But when we look for diversity of perspective and background, we're going to hopefully get a more expansive view of the problem when the people come on board and are able to evaluate it. Mm-hmm. And who cares what their Enneagram style is? We will incorporate it. We will integrate it into our culture and make sure that we understand each other and that we don't shut the door on, on these, these thought processes or these gifts that these people have that they, they want to provide. 
should be provided. Well, I consider myself incredibly lucky because um, the the company that put me on the map was K2 Design. Uh, back during the dot-com era, you know, mm-hmm. I started this little company in a 9 by 12 room. And within two to three years, we had 60 employees and we had offices in Germany and we went public. And it was all because of the dot-com explosion, the first big explosion of this. And we had a criteria for hiring. First, we didn't put the ads out as the the founders of the company. We had the teams Mm -hmm. decide who they wanted and what they needed. So they had to do a deep dive discussion. We're talking five or six people just going back and forth, what we need in a person. Then, and I hate to say it, it was a little old fashioned back then, they would take out an ad in the newspaper and put something up on on a message board back then. And so they might get 100 candidates and they would just narrow it down, narrow it down. And then they'd bring in those three or four candidates. And I got to tell you, uh, then they would, the last round, the last two rounds, then they got to meet us, the, the owners of the company, the founders. And we would grill them more on um, what would happen in a crisis kind of thing. We would ask them those kind of questions. And their response, we would watch their, their body language and also what their response was. And at the end of the day, this is this is the best part. I think if you know yourself really well and you know you can hire against your own type, you can go with that gut instinct of trust. And right. I believe we created one of the most diverse um, you know, cultures made up of people from everywhere. We're talking India, Germany, Jamaica, because, and here was the criteria, Carl. I wanted the most creative work I could get from a person who came from someplace else because they brought us that edge, that elusive competitive edge. So when Vinton, we were hiring Vinton, he was from Jamaica, Jamaican American. And uh, at the end of the interview, he, we're alone in my office together. Everybody had left and I shut the door and I go, so what do you think? And he goes, I don't know how to build a website. I said, don't worry about it. I said, nobody does. Cause this is back in the early, early days of all this. I said, Hang on and follow your mentors. Mm-hmm. Your art directors already know how to do this. They know how to work with the programming department. Get in there and just learn. Mm-hmm. And th- these are the kind of things, I think, making it feel like a family environment. Yes. No, Letting the person know they're not going to get fired because they made one mistake. That, that pressure, man, it really changes people's behavior. Mm-hmm. And supporting their growth within the organization, you know, and please jump in. Have you seen that this creates an amazing amount of loyalty in, in employees? Yeah. And I'm going to take it back. We're going to talk about culture again, because you mentioned, so you're, what you're describing was you're hiring for culture and you're hiring for the soft skills rather than the technical or hard skills, right? Because you, yeah. it's so much, and there's so many studies that are out there that show that you can build those technical skills or hard skills, but if you don't have someone that fits within this inclusive culture, yeah. then it's it's all for naught. So I see where organizations do that where they hire for the emotional intelligence and the culture fit. And it's going to be, it's going to be different because there's each organization has a culture based on the leadership and the leaders basically define that culture, right? But then each department or function within that organization may have a slightly different culture. And so you can even define those cultures with the Enneagram. 
So you could have, I'll, I'll just pick a, a couple of companies that I've worked with in the past. You could have a type seven overall culture for the organization. And you can measure that, by the way. You can have the, the assessments and you can figure out what is the culture of the organization. And then you can have the, a different department have a different Enneagram type culture, if you want to look at it that way. And another department have a different Enneagram type culture. But overall, they have to work together within that Uber culture of right. the organization and understand that they're counterculture, that they are a counterculture. And why they may be having these challenges with these other departments or functions is because they don't all have exactly the same type of thinking. Yeah. Right. So once you understand that and you understand how, what, what are the strengths that you have because of that culture and what are the blind spots and limitations you have, then you can build in processes and ways of working together that can address those and minimize those, those rifts. I want to I want to ask people uh, a couple of questions. I, w- I want to talk about that the blind spot I find fascinating for a lot of people. But um, pick up the book, the how and why taking care of business with the Enneagram. Uh, Carl, you've written a, an outstanding book. I got a chance to look at it. Where do we pick up your book? By the way, can we get it on Amazon? It's on Amazon, yeah, it's on Amazon. You can uh, go directly to Amazon. You could also go to my website because you'll get more information about it. www performandfunction.com and there's and it's spelled out it's fully to... spelled out performandfunction.com yeah and the other uh yeah the and is not an ampersand it's the actual and and for perform and function and the other thing if you if the if the business book is too deep for you too much too deep uh, <laughs> although again i do not recommend you reading it cover to cover it's look at the chapters depending on the challenges that you're having look at the specific chapter it's meant to be read that way but if you uh, want an introduction the children's book is the same thing nina and the really really tough decision takes a look at introducing the enneagram to adults and children the adults who read the book to the children to the concept of the Enneagram without calling it out as such. I, I love that. You know, when somebody takes a business idea and a concept or economics or business, whatever, and they present a children's version of it, because if we had all gotten this training as kids, my God, the world would be a much better place. Don't you exactly. think? That's exactly the thought behind that. Now, I I, I do love your book because um, I, here, here are just some examples of the uh, chapters. Like chapter one is sense making. <laughs> you know, it's got to make sense, right? Um, then you introduce the enneagram into business settings, um, strategic planning, values, culture, decision making, and problem solving and innovation. Um, and then you you talk heavily about communication, 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 um, team building, change management, um, conflict management is incredible. Um, how do you d- have those heroic conversations, especially when it comes to like a person's blind spot? How do you do that? So it really depends on the relationship. It depends on someone feeling safe and knowing that they're not going to be judged or or treated badly in the organization because of a development need, right? Mm-hmm. So this needs to be seen as someone is willing to invest in me to develop me, to help me develop this. Again, assuming that the person is ready for it and open to it. And the culture, we, we do feedback so poorly in organizations because yeah. it's, it's seen as this, this horrible event that's going to be bad to your ego, right? It's going to hurt you. I mean, people walk up to you and say, Brad, can I give you some feedback? And immediately you see the person recoil and say, uh-oh, what did I do wrong? Something's right. bad. Right? You never say, Brad, can I give you some feedback? And then go, my God, that was the, the absolute 
best podcast interview ever, right? Yeah. You'll start off with that. You'll totally yeah. start off with that. You're not going to ask for permission to give feedback and then, then put the p- p- person in, in this horrible state. <laughs> and if we just make it more regular, make it integrated into being a regular part of every single interaction that we have, every meeting, every project, every every sprint, every whatever we do is just filled with the right productive, constructive feedback where people are welcoming it and not seeing it as a threat or an attack to their ego. I like that. What you said, you know, they, they aren't threatened by it and it's not a personal attack on their ego. Um, they found that 65% of leaders are okay with being coached. The rest don't want to hear about it. And those organizations suffer in this day and age, just like that story I told where, you know, there's five white guys sitting there explaining what it's like in the organization for black women and and gay and lesbian people. It's like, what a disconnect that can happen right in front of your face and not know it. That's a blind spot to me. And, and how do we discover blind spots? Because, um, the, the only way I know in my own relationship is if my girlfriend says, Hey, uh, you're kind of deflecting there (laughs) or you're avoiding what I'm telling you about and vice versa. You know, I tell her sometimes you don't listen to what is coming out of my mouth, you know, and we're not, we don't take it personally. Yeah. Maybe we, our tempers might flare a little bit or we feel wounded, but we are dedicated to the work. And I think that's the most important part of this. So let's dive into that. How do, how do you help people, uh, individuals and companies find that blind spot? Because we all have it. We yeah. all have it. So the first step is the readiness needs to be there and the openness and the trust. Again, that this is being said or presented to you as feedback to help you. And in fact, to help in the case of your relationship, right? The feedback that each of you is giving each other is for the ultimate goal of having this excellent relationship. So there's this mutual goal that is is understood and agreed to. So as long as people are taking their egos out of the equation, understanding that this feedback is being provided for whatever that mutually agreed to goal is, this greater goal, that's going, and and they're open to it, right? Because you you can't work with anyone that says, no, I'm perfect. Everyone else needs to change around me, right? You can't. (laughs) You're not going to get anywhere. (laughs) Wow. It is true. You're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you really care about people, you work in an HR department, and uh, you really want your organization to sing, I want you to reach out to Carl because this work, you you know, we all have, how can I say, they call them niche readers or hobbyists or whatever. Like my, my niche reading obsession is, global economics and this stuff, (laughs) you know, behavioral stuff. So when I interview people, believe it or not, I use disc on them because at the end I ask the, the three lightning round questions and all I do is go against type. (laughs) That's it to stump them. And so in these organizations, if someone's really, really good and trained uh, in Enneagrams, uh, they can really help develop a training program that would really kick people up to this other level of development. Uh, I think it's really uh, astounding. You should approach the American Management Association about this. I think I think this is powerful, powerful work. Um, and it accents Myers-Briggs. It accents DISC yes. 
training. It doesn't take away from it. It actually aligns with it because you you talked about the types that you know the sixes and the sevens and the eights and all that, and and then you break down, use the other stuff to say, well, they're probably this, you know, and it's like whoa because it it just ties right in. I love it. Yeah, and I would even expand it beyond just the training to the policies and the the systems, uh, the reward systems, the benefit structure, all these things need to be integrated because right now we're only really rewarding the threes, the sevens, and the eights in everything that yeah. we do. Well they, well, they just did a study recently and they found out, hey, uh, soft skills matter, folks. And, and people have been ignoring those soft skills. And that's why those types get the rewards because you know, they're, they're the hunters and, you know, there's the result. There it is. Look at their numbers. Let's reward them. But what about the other person? We had a person in our company that, uh, Wendy, Wendy was the production manager. So all work went through her, but Wendy was quiet. She was, you know, sort of, Hey, like a, like a wallflower, you know, people didn't get to notice her when she entered a room. She was just quiet. Her and her husband were the best, just great, solid people. But Wendy was quiet and just got her work done. And my one business partner called her fearless because when a vendor screwed up, she'd get on the phone and yell at him. So, but here was the thing. When we let the teams decide the bonus structure for the year, and they were picking all these people. And one of the persons, they said, hey, Michelle should get a bonus. you know." And we're like, Michelle's only been here three months. And my, my partner and I, we don't usually interfere with you know, the, the, the managers when they're making these decisions. So Doug and I are sitting there and we're quiet and we're watching them go, oh, we should give $2,500 to this person. And Michelle's doing such a great job. And it's like, yeah, but this, these people have been here for two years and they've crushed it with this and this and this. And guess who wasn't even on the board for a bonus? Wendy. Yeah. And it's because Wendy didn't have the greasy wheel, you know, that gets the grease, you know, <laughs> she didn't bitch, piss and moan. She didn't complain. She did her job. She went home. She did her OT. And we all sat there. And at the end of it, Doug and I said, what about Wendy? The room got so embarrassed because they were picking the shiny stars, yep. but not the person who was doing the actual, you know, I don't want to use an expletive, doing the actual work that right. everybody was throwing at her. She was the linchpin for everything. Right. And we got up and left and said, you guys figure it out. Wendy's the one who deserves the highest bonus here. And we walked away and they, they were so ashamed yeah. of that. And I think that happens a lot in organizations yes. and it needs to change. Let's talk about that a little bit, because sometimes you're going to lose that great employee who shows up early and leaves late, but doesn't make waves. So it's a, it's a two-way street. It really is a two-way street is what I found out because you're absolutely right. We reward the, and they're called the assertive styles. The assertive styles are the threes, the sevens, and the eights. They will assert what their needs are. They will assert what they want in a certain situation. But then we also have the other six styles and they are not as assertive. Some of them are called compliant because they say, these are the rules. Like I'm going to just, I'm going to just pick, I'll say Wendy is part of the, in the compliant and she could be in, in the other style uh, set as well, but right. I'll just say that she's in the compliance center um, or section. 
where she's like, I know what the rules are. If I just do my work, if I put my head down and, and really, really deliver and everything, I will get taken care of by the organization because that's my expectation. Those are the rules. That's the, the process that's been laid out for me. Those are, and that, and that will happen without me having to say anything. Right. Yeah. So if that's the case and you have a, a leadership team or a management team that's making decisions based on, and again, they're human. So they're just hearing things. They're hearing the threes and sevens and eights say, I did this, I did this, I accomplished this. And, you know, all this stuff, that's what they're going to remember. Yeah. And they're not going to pay attention to the compliant types. Yeah. And it's important that organizations pay attention to the compliant types because sometimes they are the, like I said, the linchpin in the organization. And the day they leave and go on to another position, everybody goes, oh my God, I miss Wendy. Yeah, I, I didn't realize how much she did. Mm -hmm. Of course she didn't, because you're always talking about yourself. Uh, yeah. so, <laughs> so the two-way street is the less assertive types need to also assert themselves, understanding that they're working in a culture that rewards that. How can they have their own voice? How, how can they speak up? to say what they've accomplished or what's going on for them or what they want. Okay. You know, and if you're from a different culture, I want to point this yeah. out because I had an employee from India and we had all these IT guys from MIT together and um, we were, we were volleying for a new position. And so we put the word out within the company and all these people submitted their resumes and all this. After we promoted somebody, I find out that this other guy had a better resume and better credentials. I said, why didn't you step up and say something? And he said, because in my culture, Brad, in India, that's considered bragging. You don't do that. And I said, well, I, I hate to say it. You're in a culture where you got to step up and you got to say, because I would have loved to have promoted you and put you into this position in, instead of the other person, because he was just so good with all the other employees, all the team. It was just beautiful to watch him work. And right. that happens. You know, nowadays we're getting this, um, the, the extrovert, uh, extroverts are getting kickback from the introverts now of saying, hey, <laughs> shut it and listen to us. And I think it's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Again, we, it's a two-way street. Yep. I agree. I like that. I like your perspective on it. Thank you. Uh, reach out to Carl, everybody. Go to www.performandfunction.com. Uh, he can help your organization. Uh, phenomenal. You do one-on-one -on -one, uh, coaching as well. Is that correct? Absolutely. I do one-on-one. -on -one. I do team coaching. I coach leaders and their teams. I help with culture assessment and identifying what the different cultures are and what the blind spots are and how do we address those. Yeah. Excellent. The whole gamut. I love this. I hope everybody got a lot out of this. We're going to go into the lightning round real quick, Carl, if you have a little okay. bit of time. I know we're going over. But I'm going to ask you three questions so we get to know you better. And uh, okay. the first one is, uh, tell us something about yourself that nobody knows about you. Despite the fact that I have a really, really German name, I was, <laughs> I'm actually half Greek and I was raised in Greece. That's funny. And you speak fluent French. How did you, how did you get the, the French uh, speaking going on? Because of being raised in Greece, uh, they require you to take different languages. So I was taking, uh, I was in a Greek school, um, an English school that was with Greek. And then they also require you to take another language. And I chose French at that point. 
So I started off with French back then. So say your last name again. It's Heaven. Heaven Strait. Heaven Strait. It's not Greek. That's not Greek. It's That's not Greek. Greek at all. <laughs> my mom's side Heaven, is Greek. Yeah, Heaven Strait. That's yeah. awesome. The uh, uh, second question: Do you have a favorite memory at all? Favorite memory? Um, I would think back and say one of my favorite memories is the consistency of um, childhood going to school and and going down this flight of stairs. So we we lived upstairs and my grandparents lived downstairs. So two, two family house. Right. And my grandfather would always leave a chocolate bar for me on the, the marble little, um, I don't even ledge of the, where the shutters were. So I'd have to pass by this, this window with the shutters. And there was always a, a Greek chocolate, an eon uh, Greek chocolate bar that I would have. To, and I still have chocolate every single day. So yes, that's my, <laughs> that's my favorite memory. That's my, my grandfather showing love through chocolate. Uh, you're cracking me up. You are cracking me up because my great grandfather would babysit me once in a while. I knew all my great grandparents and uh, he was retired. And I remember he would walk me to the candy store and I could pick out whatever I wanted. And they had the glass domes mm-hmm. for the, the different things. And his favorite thing was those uh, jelly mint candies that were sprinkled with real sugar and had back then they had real mint in them. And I would always get licorice. So you remind me of that. And uh, yeah. that is really, really touching. Uh, so what's your favorite chocolate now? <laughs> what? So I know I'm supposed to like dark chocolate. And dark chocolate is great. But milk chocolate, I have such a sweet tooth. I need to have yeah. milk. Yeah. Although I, I I, will not turn down dark chocolate. You know? No, not at all. <laughs> Chocolate's chocolate, my friend. Yes. And Dove. Dove, uh, Dove is oh, really yeah. good. Dove yeah. is good. My dad used to be a chocolate chemist before he became a chiropractor. And he, once a month, he would get these giant candy bars and lay them out on the table, open them up and taste test each one. Mm-hmm. And he would go, Bradley, get over here. And he'd go, this is going to be a big seller. It's called Cadbury. It's got nuts and raisins in it. And it, and it turned out he was right. Yeah. He, he had Cadbury before yeah. anybody knew what it was. I was amazed. I love, and, and there's a difference between the European Cadbury and the American Cadbury. Yeah. And I, I do love Cadbury, the European Cadbury especially. I love European chocolate much more so because people don't know this. Um, a lot of the American companies have replaced the cocoa oil with vegetable oil. Yeah. And it's a very slight difference, but mm-hmm. you can taste it. Yes, you can. If you really enjoy it, I get lint all the time. Yes, um, lint is great and, too. And, you know, get a little bar of that. And um, the what is the Rocher? The the Ferrero Rocher. Yeah, Ferrero Rocher. I love those. Those are so good. You're making me hungry. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's later for you, so it's lunchtime for you already. Yes. Oh yes, yes. And uh, my final question is, what pisses you off? In people being inconsiderate, yeah. really pe- people just putting themselves and their own needs before the system, the, the culture, the other people. And there's a difference between self-care and then, you know, just being oblivious to the fact that there are people around you living in the world with, with you. So yeah. that's what really, um, that's what really is a trigger for me. Yeah. Well, you are li- you are living in very interesting times, my friend. We are. We are. <laughs> we, we're going to get triggered every day over stuff. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's just oof, what a world we live in. But we're creating a better world, you and I. We're trying. <laughs> we are trying. Yes, it's a whole. That's the whole reason for Awakened Nation. I try to get everybody on the show. Doesn't matter what background. I do. I really want to have that big conversation, my friend. Ladies and gentlemen, please reach out to Carl. Uh, once again, go to his website. It's perform and function, fully spelled out, A-N-D, not ampersand. Uh, and it's Carl Hebenstreit, uh, PhD. I want to thank you for being on the show today, Carl. Oh, my it's, pleasure. Thank you, um, Brad. This has been a refreshing conversation. And I know you probably get people who are like, you know, why do you do this kind of work? I love this kind of work. I, oh, I, I just, too. I see organizations changing because of people like you. They're becoming more uh shifting their energy awakened yeah Yeah. thank you nice i like how you did that (laughs) anyways hey everybody reach out to carl pick up his book and uh don't forget next week we're going to have another extraordinary guest here on awakened nation and once again thank you carl for being on the show thank you brad this is great thank you so much for being a big part of the awakened nation movement this is how you can help me and our extraordinary guests If you guys enjoyed this episode, please share it out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let's grow this movement by word of mouth. Our success will be because of you. Thank you, and see you next week.